Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good evening again. Um, My name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the pastor here at Advent, and it's good to be here with you all. Um, I feel a little bit like we're leaning to this side uh, with a fewer folks over on here, but I will look over here every now and then as well. Um, uh, One of the things, uh, you know, I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but it is based on... um, A church history of what are referred to as the O antiphons um, that that monks in the mid-centuries began to long for and and write um, these, these longing hymns for Christ to come again. And so that's what we're doing when we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is that we are longing for him to come again. Um, and we're recognizing that he has come once on Christmas, but that he will come again to us one day, someday. Um, and now, if y'all are like me, you know, on Christmas Eve, um, it used to come with a whole lot more preparation and joy in my heart as a, as a child. It comes a little faster and more like a slap in the face as an adult of like, oh, it's here. Um, and I'm supposed to be happy and joyful in all things and in all circumstances, right? Um, we were watching, I don't know how many of y'all watch Home Alone uh, with frequency, but it is without a doubt in the top three Christmas movies of, of our household. Um, and we were watching it, I think, for the second time this Christmas season. Um, and uh, I, I love the scene where, um, you know, uh, Kevin's mom is back. She's made it back from France where they've left Kevin home alone in Chicago. She's managed to get, I think, to Scranton or Sheboygan. I don't remember exactly where it was at that point. And she's up at the counter and they're telling her that there's no more flights to get to Chicago. It's over. It's done with. And she says, you know, um, well, this is Christmas, the season of perpetual hope, right? Meaning, like, we're going to be hopeful in all things. Good things are going to happen, even though seemingly terrible things have been happening to her and her family all along the way. And I think that we have a tendency to put that kind of pressure on Christmas um, when we come to it in the Christmas season, right? If, if I can just just get to Christmas, then things will be better, right? This is the season that's going to make me happy. Um, The presents, the food, the time with family and friends, right? The sparkly lights, the music, right? Why am I not feeling the joy? This is the season of perpetual hope. Um, Or maybe some of you are coming here tonight and you actually are in a place of joy and hope, and that's wonderful, But if you're in the first group, you're like, I hate those people, Um, right? Because most of the time, we're not really that joyful of other people being joyful. Um, Yet oftentimes, the things about this season that give us those good feelings, even if we are feeling joyful this evening, oftentimes those things are fleeting at best, right? By tomorrow afternoon... When almost all of the when all almost all the presents have been unwrapped, all the food has been eaten, you're done with all of the family dinners and all of that sort of thing. You're sort of left wondering, what else is there to do? All the same conflicts that I was in with people are there. All the same struggles that I was going through are there. And now you guys are like, awesome, Taylor. Now I'm like really bummed out. That was not the best way to start 
um, this sermon. Because it's true that Christmas is the season of perpetual hope. But my point tonight is why? Right? What is it about Christmas that should give us genuine hope that no matter what our circumstances are this evening, whether we're coming where things have been really good in life or whether we've been coming and they've been incredibly challenging, why should Christmas bring us hope? Right? We're in the light of all that's gone wrong around us, that we might still be able to actually have that kind of hope. Right? Where in a world full of wars, in a world where Israel and Palestine are at war with one another, and Ukraine and Russia, and actually there's over 45 different armed conflicts throughout the entire world right now. Right? Is it possible to have hope in light of all of that? Right? In a world where people are getting sick over and over again and dying, in a world where violence and inflation and all sorts of mental health, all of these things are up right now, is there a way in which we can actually have hope? And the answer is yes. God is our hope. Right? And not just in the, like, it, it'll all work out in the end, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Um, but I mean, like, right now, today, there is genuine hope for us. And so this evening, we're actually going to be looking at a kind of a non-traditional Christmas text. Um, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, and though it isn't often read at Christmas, it gives us so much more of an understanding about who Jesus is and actually everything we've read up to this point in our service. This passage is about God's relationship with King David and his household. Right, where David has finally defeated all of his, Israel's enemies up to this point. The Ark of the Covenant has been returned to its home um, and to its people. And David is excited to celebrate the victory. Right, but as we read and as we talk about this passage together, I want for us to pay attention to three things. Right, that God brings hope for us um, in these three, three ways. He changes our priorities he changes our reliance, and He changes our allegiance. Our priorities, our reliance, and our, our allegiance. So if you would, um, you can turn with me to 2 Samuel 7. We're going to read verses 1 uh, through 16. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I, ha- and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you um, for this word uh, this evening. Lord, that you have established the throne of David forever. And I pray, Lord, as we consider this uh, passage together tonight that you would cause us to see King Jesus more clearly, to understand who he is, and to place our trust and our hope in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the passage tells us that David lived in in this house and that God had given him rest uh, from all of his surrounding enemies. The king Uh, who's pretty much kind of only known war and conflict up to this point, Um, he's finally getting to this peaceful place. And a picture, like the picture here sort of feels like the the hobbits returning home to the Shire, right? There's been a ton of conflict, all sorts of crazy things have been going on, and now they're returning home and there is peace. And David gets the idea that he's going to do something for God here, right? He lives in this beautiful palace of cedar, Meanwhile, God who created everything and gave David victory, he's the one that lives in a tent, right? Um, This isn't right, David thinks. And so as one commentator suggests, David adds something to to his to-do list here. He decides that he's going to build a permanent house for God. And it's hard to know David's motivation here. On one hand, it could be that he feels guilty um, that he has such nice accommodations and the God who has given him all things doesn't really have that sort of thing. That could be his motivation. It could also be um, that, uh, that he's just been like crushing everything that God has put before him and now he's feeling really good about himself, right? So I'm doing great as a king. I've done great at getting the ark back to my people. Um, I've done great at defeating our enemies, building Jerusalem and all of these sorts of things. So yeah, I'm the one who should build the house for God, right? It could be that sort of of pride that is his motivation. But it also could be that he thinks the best way to keep God's favor is to do something for him, right? God seems happy now, but things feel too good uh, and too quiet and I need to do something for God or else like the other shoe's going to fall and things are going to go wrong really quick. So what can I do to appease him? Right? We don't know the exact motivation for what David is thinking here and why he decides to add to his to-do list. 
We just know that God grabs the to-do list from David and takes it upon himself and tears it up. Like God doesn't need a house of cedar. God doesn't need a permanent home. He reminds David that in the past, right, not having a home hasn't actually kept him from doing anything to keep his promises before. Right? He's not had a home, um, and that hasn't caused him to be separated from David and the others. No, he has always been near, and he's always been available. So this extra item, this extra priority that David has put before him and that David is convinced of, is that going to, to break uh, God's faithfulness? Is that going to make it or break it? No. But this is the type of thinking that we all fall into, and I confess that as a pastor, I, I fall into it all the time. Right? When we think maybe more on the pastoral end that around Christmas, that like if we just send out more invitations then, you know, great things are going to happen for God and His kingdom or for the church. Or if we just make more Christmas cookies and, um, and throw more parties the right way and host more things. Um, and obviously I'm being a little bit facetious here, but that's the type of thinking that we all, uh, that we all go into. Right? It's easy to think that those extra tasks that we've given to ourselves are going to be the difference. Right? They're going to be the things that ensures God's favor. For me, the fault can be believing that what I do or what I fail to do can be the difference in whether or not God's kingdom gets built. Right? I just need to do a little bit more and then the church will grow or then his kingdom will come. But we all think that this time of year. Maybe it's not about those things in particular, but perhaps we think if I just get the perfect gift for my loved one when we're estranged from one another, then perhaps that'll be that, that very first catalyzing effect that brings reconciliation between us. Or we think maybe I just need to bake more cookies or something like that for my neighbor because then they'll finally recognize that like, I love them. Maybe they'll like bring their dog in at night so it won't be barking quite as much. Or maybe they'll watch my house when I go out of town. Something along those lines. Or maybe I need to just send out one more work email. Because that's going to be the difference in whether or not we make the financial quarter this year. Right? That's going to be the very difference. Until we send that email out and we realize, no wait, there's another one. No wait, there's another one. I just need to do one more thing, we think. But God reminds us here that his priorities are not our priorities. Starting in verse 8, he reminds David all that he has done for him. Right? That, that he is at work even now, protecting his people and preparing a place for them. That he doesn't ask David to do more things for him. God asks David, though, to trust him. That he is in control. To stop relying on himself and to rely upon him. And that's our second point, that God changes our reliance. Toward the middle of the passage, God gives a long explanation to David. And in one sense, it kind of sounds like a lecture. Um, but the main point of it is that God is trying to remind David that he is the author and sustainer of all things. In essence, he says to David, right, like, you think that you're going to build me a house I am the one who is actually building something here. I am building your house. 
Stop relying on your own strength or your own military power or your own intelligence of what you think you would do. Your own ideas of how things ought to be, but instead rely upon me. Right, God calls David and he calls us and tells us to give all of, those, all of those things, all of our concerns, all of our heart to him to rely upon him. To let go of whatever it is that we believe what will bring us fulfillment and meaning and joy. Right? Whatever it is that we are hoping for. God reminds David that he is the one who brought him kind of out of the shepherding fields. He's the one who crowned, crowned David and made him king. He's the one who brought about that rest. He's the one who brought them back into the land and gave them this peace. And that he has always been with David, whether it's been in a tent or not. And God has been with David, and God has been with you and with me. And here's the point, that when we rely upon our own priorities, on our own to-dos, or we rely even upon others or ourselves, we are always let down. Because we always let ourselves down, we will always be let down by others. Even if we fulfill our to-do list, even if we fulfill our priorities, we're left wanting more. Unless we rely upon him, unless we place our rest and our trust in him, we will be left wanting more. Right? So for example, how do you feel when you get everything that you asked for for Christmas? Right, kids, how do you feel when you get everything that you've wanted? How do you feel when the party that you planned and hosted is over or um, the race that you've trained for is over and you did pretty well, right? Honestly, you probably feel, feel pretty good for a little bit. I'm not, I'm not uh, denigrating those positive feelings for a little while. But my point is this, that it's a fleeting feeling. Within a few days, maybe even weeks, those feelings go away. And that if you're looking for ful fulfillment in temporary things, your feelings of fulfillment will be temporary. You will run yourself ragged chasing that next thing and that next thing and that next thing. But if you look for fulfillment in eternal things, your fulfillment will be forever. When we remember that everything we have is the Lord's and we remember that no matter our circumstances, His promises are still true, we remember that the only reason that we can receive any of the gifts that we have is because of Him. Right, the only reason that we, we get to host parties or run fun races is because he is the giver of all good things in our life. And that we can hold those things more loosely, trusting in him. And we can be grateful for them. We can remember that God's kingdom is forever. And even in our most challenging of circumstances, we can remember that he has promised that he will always be with us. And as we rely on him, he brings us true joy. And so that brings us to our last point, which is that God changes our very allegiance. At the end of the passage, um, in addition to all, uh, all of these promises that God has made and kept, uh, he makes another huge promise. Right? The Bible calls, calls these types of promises covenants. Um, in essence, they're almost legal promises. Right? But God makes one of these with, um, with people. 
And so this isn't exactly like a legal contract between equals, right? Um, This is God, the initiator and actor of the covenant, making a contract with a people who are completely unable to keep their end of any part of the deal, right? God does not need to do this. He's making a legal promise even though he doesn't need to, but he does so for our benefit on our behalf, right? To show us that he really means it. And so God promises here and covenants that he will build David's house. And the meaning here is metaphorical, right? Though David wanted to build a physical house for God, God wants to establish a household for David. Verse 12 says, I will raise up for you offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom so the point is that someone from the line of David an ancestor a relative of David will have this established kingdom that essentially means that their reign and their rule will be established forever it will come and it will be true and it goes on in verse 13 he says I shall build a house for my name And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And a part of us, when we hear that, we think like, he shall build a house for my name. We think that God is sort of talking about a permanent temple. Right? A house made out of cedar. And David's son, Solomon, actually does build for him a temple. But like any good mystery novel, it doesn't make sense to us until we get to the very end of the mystery. And that's why we read those passages in Luke beforehand. The first scripture reading in Luke 1, the angel Gabriel goes to visit Mary. And the messenger, which is what the word angel means uh, in Greek, tells Mary that that she was going to have a son. Through the Holy Spirit, the author of life, she is going to have a baby son. And this son will be known as the son of the Most High, or in other words, the Son of God. Literally, because this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't stop there, right? The angel goes on and says, This baby will sit on the throne of his father, meaning his ancestor David. And in an allusion to our passage, 2 Samuel 7, Gabriel says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. God has promised that David's household will be established forever. But there was no way to imagine the way in which God was going to fulfill that actual promise. Right? That the king of all creation would be born of a girl of humble, humble means in the middle of nowhere by a virgin in the town of Nazareth. Right? That the reign and rule that would be established for all eternity would be from a king who conquers his enemies, not with a sword, by vanquishing them militarily, but by laying down his life for them as a sacrifice. That our forever king is the actual house of God. God is making his tent dwelling, which... The Apostle John uses that exact language to talk about uh, the, word of ma- uh, the Word becomes flesh and dwells with us, which literally means making a tent with us. That is who Jesus is, the God-man, God with us in physical form, God's dwelling. His household is established forever through Jesus' body. 
and through Jesus' blood. This is our king. Our king is Jesus. He's not come to establish a political power like most of the people of his day and age would have believed and, and did believe. Right? He's not come to sort of make Israel great again or to do so for any country or corporation or individual. He's come to scatter the proud and to exalt the humble, as Mary says. To show the strength of our God and to give mercy to those who fear Him. This is our King. And His reign is established forever. So why is Christmas the season of perpetual hope? Right? Well, it's that in Jesus' coming and in His coming kingdom, we have God's reign and rule that is established forever. That God is with us in ways that we don't even comprehend. That God is redeeming us, taking a people who would rather all sorts of other things, and He's loving us and bringing us into His kingdom anyway. His kingdom is utterly reliant upon Him, not on people like me who would fail to do so. We don't have to do anything for God to let us into his kingdom or to show his favor to us because he has done everything for us. He has done great things for us as we sang and as we have sung together this evening. He asked for us to come to him. Would you all pray with me under that end? Our Father, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, that in him you are with us and that in him you are building a household for your name. That you are building a new kingdom and as you come again, Father, that you will make all things right and good. But that you have established that through Christ's first coming. And that in him we have hope. So no matter what our circumstances are this evening, I pray that we would turn to you in hope. Realizing that the things that we're often running to are fleeting at best but that in you there is hope eternal. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.